morning. I want to say good morning to those of you who are joining us online as well. We are so glad that you are with us this morning. Now, I want to begin by just asking you a question. If I were to ask you when you came in the doors or when you logged in online, just a very simple question, you would probably actually laugh at it if I asked, do you know what a penny is? You say, well, of course I do. It's a little coin. Actually, I was looking for one last night at home and I couldn't find one, so it tells you how often I use pennies. Um, You say, of course I know what a penny looks like. And you could probably say that good old Abe Lincoln is on the front of it. But which way is he facing? Or what's the word to his left? Or what's on the tails side of the penny? Not only that, what's written on that side? And all of a sudden, you probably realize, maybe I don't know a penny as much as I thought I did. And that's okay. It's not like you have to know pennies all that well. But the point is that, and I steal this illustration from a guy named Jared Wilson, who has a great last name. And so I thought, oh, I should take that. The point is that maybe familiarity doesn't always breed contempt, but it often does breed complacency. When we think we know something, we think we don't need to look any further. And sometimes maybe that could even be true of us at church, that we think we know Jesus. Probably most of you, if you walked in today or logged in online and I asked, do you know who Jesus is? You would say, yeah, of course I do. But we've got to watch out and make sure that when we answer, yes, I know who Jesus is, it doesn't prevent us then from looking further at him in the scriptures. See, we're in the the middle of a short series on the sufficiency of scripture. We defined it last week like this. Scripture is sufficient to know God and to follow God. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about this, and that's why you're sitting here for a 30, 40-minute sermon, because there is a lot more that could be said about this. Nonetheless, last week we looked at Psalm 19 and saw that scripture is a miraculous revelation of God. God is telling us who he is. And he does so in his world, yes, but also specifically, specially in his word. And so that's what we looked at last week. And this week we'll then look at the first part of that definition that it's sufficient to know God. It tells us everything we need to know about him. And the next week we'll look at how it's sufficient to follow him. It tells us everything we need to know about how to live obediently. But as we begin, I want to just look at Hebrews chapter 1. That's not our main text for this morning, but you might be wondering, when we talk about scripture is sufficient, you might be saying, well, Josh, how do we know that what's contained in this book is everything God intended to give us? How do we know that he's not going to keep adding more chapters that might still be needed? And I think we see in Hebrews chapter 1 a compelling argument as to why that is. Because we see last week that God revealed himself in his world and in his word. And Hebrews 1 tells us he revealed himself also in his son. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, there's a lot that could be said there, but we, when we stop to think about the book of Hebrews, we could really say that it's this. Jesus is greater. 
An outline of Hebrews could be he's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua, his rest. His priesthood is greater than Aaron's priesthood. His covenant is greater than the old covenant. And his blood is greater than the blood of goats and calves. Jesus is greater. And so the author of Hebrews then is giving us a look at this son of God who is greater than what was previously revealed. It's, it's It's taking a look at the Old Testament and saying, Jesus is the true and better. And he tells us that long ago, God spoke to our fathers, that is, the patriarchs, the, the fathers of Israel, and he spoke to them by the prophets. But that then is contrasted by what comes next. So the implication then is that God no longer speaks to us by the prophets in many times and in many ways, because God now speaks to us in a different way by his son. He said, in these last days, that is what you and I are living in, and it's also what the disciples were living in. It's been the last 2,000 years, these last days. God has spoken to us by his son. There's at least four contrasts going on in these opening verses. Where it was previously long ago, now it's in these last days. Where it was previously in many times and in many ways, now it is in this one way. Where it was previously to our fathers, now it is to us. And where it was previously by the prophets, now it is by the Son. And so the author of Hebrews is giving us in these opening verses a portrait of the Son of God. He is saying he is the heir of all things. He created the world. He is God. He upholds the entire universe by his word. He made purification for sins. He sits right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he is greater than angels, bearing a far more excellent name. But for our purposes, I want you to note that after making purification for sins, he sat down. You say, well, what's the big deal about Jesus sitting down? It's a signifying that his work is complete. Remember on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. His work is done. Everything necessary for your salvation and for mine has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross and with his resurrection. Everything. He has nothing left to do for us in salvation. And so because of that, he has nothing left to reveal to us in his word. See, the progress of revelation throughout the Bible has always been in accordance with the progress of redemption throughout the Bible. And so the point in saying all this is that because because the son's salvific work is complete, that is his work of salvation, because his salvific work is complete, so too is his work of revelation. To suggest then that revelation is incomplete and is ongoing, that we need something more, is to suggest that the son's work in salvation is incomplete and ongoing and that we need something more. The author of Hebrews is tying these things together in these opening verses. Last week I quoted Kevin DeYoung, so I'll do it again this week. He writes, Scripture is enough because the work of Christ is enough. They stand or fall together. The son's redemption and the son's revelation must both be sufficient. He says elsewhere, the fullness and finality of Christ's redemption is tied to the fullness and finality of Christ's revelation. You say, well, okay, why does all this matter? Why are we beginning here? Well, it's because this morning we're going to be looking at this Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And we have to understand that he has made purification for sins. He has done everything necessary to bring you and me to salvation in him. And so because of that, God has told us everything that we need to know about how to follow him. He's already done everything on the cross and with his resurrection, and so 
He's already told us everything about how to be saved with him. And also, too, it's to help us guard against the saying that every now and then arises that we should be people following the incarnate word, Jesus, rather than the written word of the Bible, as if they disagree. Now, some of you might have red letter Bibles, and that's okay, as long as we realize that theologically speaking, every letter in there should be read. It's all the word of God. And in fact, the reason that John calls him the word of God is to help us see that when the triune God is acting in his creation, it is by his son. Jesus the Christ, the word of God. We cannot and must not pit Christ and the scriptures against each other as if they are opposed. No, no, no. They stand or fall together. And so as the early church father Jerome wrote, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And so all this leads us to our main point for today, and it's this. The Bible is all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. We see this in Luke chapter 24, and so I invite you to turn there. Luke chapter 24. And as you do, I want to address just a few groups of people who maybe after last week's sermon are wondering some things. You might be saying, well, I love this book. I love the Bible. I see that God has spoken to us, but I don't even know where to begin. How do we study this thing? Or you might be saying, last week we mentioned that the purpose of this book, the Bible, is not to bring confusion, but is to bring clarity as to who God is. And you might be saying, that sounds great, and I want to believe that, but every time I open this, I can't understand it. What do we do? Now, this message is not a how-to message of how to study the Bible, but nonetheless, I hope to equip us as we begin on this journey. If you're wondering, how do we begin reading the Bible as it intends and demands to be read, what do we do? And so, I want to just, anytime you read the Bible, anytime you open it up, the first question to ask is, what do I learn about God? There's all sorts of other questions we can and should ask. What do I learn about myself? What do I learn about humanity in general? What do I learn about how to live obediently following after God? All of these things are good and we must ask them. But when you read the Bible, just begin asking yourself the question, what do I learn here about God? Because what we'll come to see is that he is the purpose and the main point and the main character of every page of this book. And so we must begin and and train ourselves to be looking for him in the text. We must not think ourselves so familiar with him that we miss him and stop looking. See, last year during the pandemic, toilet paper was not the only thing that was scarce in in stores. Apparently, puzzles were as well. Apparently, I I don't know, apparently you couldn't really buy jigsaw puzzles and Amazon even was sold out. And and when Amazon's out, you know it's a big deal. Um, I occasionally do puzzles, Star Wars puzzles, the best kind. And you know, when you do a puzzle, on the front, of the box, there's a picture of what it's supposed to look like, right? And then you open it up and there's all sorts of pieces and you're like, it looks nothing like that. And you're trying to figure out how these pieces fit together. And maybe you get a couple together and then you get so frustrated, you walk away and a few days later you come back and you're trying to put them together again, right? It just seems like a jumbled mess of puzzle pieces. And yet you look at the box and you say, that's what it's supposed to look like. In some way, that's what reading the Bible is like. 
it may feel to you like there's a bunch of different pieces and you're wondering how do these fit together? But Jesus is giving us a picture of what it looks like. When the puzzle is pieced together, it looks like Christ. He is the purpose of the Bible. So we read in Luke chapter 24, and I wanna just set the stage of where we're going. We'll be specifically in verses 44 through 49 here of Luke chapter 24, but I wanna read some more to get context. So we'll back up to verse 25. Jesus, risen from the dead, he's alive. And he shows up to two of his followers along the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him. It's kind of ironic, right? They're kind of walking along the road and Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, what's going on? What are you talking about? And they're like, well, we're kind of bummed out. He's like, well, why? Well, the guy we thought the Messiah, he's dead. And Jesus is standing right there next to him. They don't realize it. It's kind of an ironic story. And then he winds up rebuking them. And that's where we'll pick it up in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, when he talked to us on the road, when he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon all of our hearts. And what we'll see this morning as we walk through this text, specifically verses 44 through 49, are four indications that we are reading scripture rightly. You want to say, how do I start reading the Bible? It's not, it's not tips or steps, but four indications, four clues that you're actually on the right track. And 
just so you know, before you start looking at your watch. And the first point will be by far the longest one. So don't be looking like, oh, he's got three more left to go. Oh no. Um, don't worry. First point will be the longest one because this is really our main focus this morning. And it's this, we read scripture rightly when we recognize the main character. We recognize the main character. If you're watching a TV show or a movie or reading a book or whatever, if you misdiagnose who the main character is, you're probably going to draw some wrong conclusions from the show, right? Same can be true of this book, the Bible. We've got to see who the main character of these words, of these books, of these pages is, and we quickly come to realize that it's Christ. Look in verses 25 through 27 again. Jesus is rebuking the followers on the road to Emmaus, and he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? So he's saying, you guys missed what the prophets were actually saying. They spoke, they, they told you these things were going to happen. Why are you so slow to believe it? Then, he, then Luke tells us, this is incredible, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's the best Bible study that you can be a part of. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's walking along the road with them, and they're looking at the Old Testament. He says, hey, you know that story there? You want to know why I put that in there? It's about me. They walk a little bit more. He's like, oh, yeah, you know that story? That's a good one. I like that one. I put that one in there because it's pointing to me. Now, he probably didn't use that language because they didn't realize it was him. But nonetheless, he's pointing out throughout the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures how it's all about him. And with his disciples later on, he's doing the same thing. Look at verse 44. He said, these are, still, or these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So in other words, I was telling you all these things already. That everything written about who? About me. In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, the Jews regarded it as a shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus says... The law and the prophets. And he says, Psalms, or we could say the writings, are talking about me. It's a stunning claim, and it would be brazenly arrogant if it were not true. See, if I were to tell you, the founding fathers had me in mind when they wrote the Constitution. That would only be true insofar as I'm associating myself as an American rather than as an individual. Because for me to say the founding fathers had Josh Wilson in mind when they wrote the Constitution is absurd and arrogant. And yet that's what Jesus is claiming about the Old Testament. It was talking about him. Not just him and his association with Israel as a Jew. No, no, no. It was talking about him as the Messiah, the Christ, individually. It was pointing to him. He had previously claimed that he was before Abraham. And the religious leaders didn't like that very much. But as we see the portrait of Christ formed throughout the pages of scripture, we see that he is the eternal son of God, that he is the author of scripture, and yet he is also its main character. All throughout, we are to see Christ. We are to read the Bible through Christocentric glasses. That is, the, the lens through which we look at the text has to be Christ. We have to be looking for him on these pages, or else we're going to miss the entire point. And actually, by the way, that was the problem of the Pharisees. Sometimes I think we, we suggest that the problem of the Pharisees was they just had too much knowledge of the Bible. We say, look at all the knowledge the Pharisees had, and it didn't save them. 
Well, that's true. Knowledge doesn't save, Christ saves. But nonetheless, we have to understand that Jesus never in his ministry rebuked people for knowing the Bible too well. He never rebuked them for having too much knowledge of this book. He rebuked them for knowing it too little. And the Pharisees, what was their problem? Well, for one, they didn't actually know and love the law like they claimed to. Jesus rebukes them at one point for saying, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So Jesus doesn't actually disparage the law. He tells the Pharisees, you actually don't love it like you claim to. It's all a show. It's not changed you internally. Jesus actually raises the bar. He says, if you've looked at your brother with anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you've looked at someone with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Jesus raises the bar. He doesn't rebuke the leaders of Israel for knowing the law. He rebukes them for not knowing it internally. And there's a more fundamental problem closely connected, and it's that they'd missed him in the text. And it's a stunning passage, what Jesus tells them in John chapter 5. He says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have not seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus doesn't come to the Pharisees and say, you know this Bible too well. He says, you don't even know it at all if you have missed me in it. He says, you know who's going to condemn you? It's going to be Moses. Now, listen, these are the leaders of Israel. These are the people that probably had the, 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 the law memorized, the first five books. Moses wrote those things, and they probably had that memorized. And Jesus is saying, you don't even know those texts because Moses was the one writing about me, and you've missed me. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They missed Christ in the text. And that's a warning for you and I as well. Because maybe you and I are familiar with the Bible. Much like you can say, I know what a penny is. You can say, I know what the Bible is. I know what, I know what Jesus is. And yet if we miss him, we miss the whole point. And I'm not just talking about the Gospels. I'm talking Genesis to Revelation. If we miss Christ, we miss the point of Scripture. See, if I, if I were to preach from the Old Testament... And I were to do all the work of exegesis in understanding what did this mean to the original audience? What did the original author mean by this? Look at the linguistic and cultural implications of it. And, and, and I were to do all of that, I have done a very noble task. We must understand what the original author and the original audience meant and understood. But if I were then to preach that sermon and could preach that just as well in a Jewish synagogue as I could in an evangelical church, I've missed the whole point of the text. I had a professor in seminary who said, never preach the Old Testament as if Christ has not been crucified. 
And so what do we do? Well, Julius Kim has advice for preachers that I think is applicable to all of us as students of the word. And the first step then is to, you know, rightly, we have to discover the truth of the text according to the human author. We got to know what was meant to the original audience. But then the second step is discern Christ in the text according to the divine author. We have to take that second step or else we're going to miss the point. Because there's a divine author of scripture. God has given us his word. And in fact, Peter hints at this when he says the, 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 uh, the original authors of scripture actually were trying to kind of figure out and they actually wrote for you and I, for us, because they couldn't understand all these things. The divine author has a coherent story that he is telling throughout the pages of this book and it's all about Christ. You say, well, how does this work? Let me do a few examples. We see from the very beginning, the very first chapter in the Bible, the very first verse in the Bible, Christ created the world. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how does he create? By speaking. And Jesus is the word of God. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians tells us all things created through him and for him. So when the Bible talks about God creating the world, he does so through his son. Christ is also the better Adam. Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. He failed in his role as the covenant representative of his people. And so Romans 5 says that we are sinners in Adam, but contrast that with Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the true and better Adam, the better covenant representative of his people, the one who succeeded where Adam failed. Christ is also the seed of the woman. So after Adam and Eve sin, there's a series of judgments and curses are pronounced upon the serpent and upon the ground and consequences on Adam and Eve. And even in the midst of this, God promises a rescuer. Right in the middle of this, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Christ is the descendant of the woman who crushed the head of that ancient serpent, Satan. It's the first promise of the gospel in scripture. Christ is the better sacrifice for sins. You fast forward to Abraham. He's taking the son of the promise, Isaac, up on the mountain. And what does Abraham say to him? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And God did, in in the immediate time, provide a substitutionary lamb caught in the thicket by its thorns. But looking forward, it prefigures a coming substitutionary lamb of Christ where God did provide the sacrifice for us in Christ. Christ also led Israel out of Egypt. Remember the story of God leading Israel out of Egypt with the plagues and the Red Sea and all that? Well, here's how Jude 5 tells us that. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus is Yahweh. He saved them out of the land of Egypt. He was also the rock that provided for Israel. Remember the rock that followed them in the wilderness and that, that provided them with nourishment and drink. The, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. He is the one providing for them in the wilderness. Christ is the greater tabernacle. Also in the wilderness, God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. And John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. Jesus is the presence of God with us. He is also the prophet greater than Moses. In Deuteronomy, Moses talks about the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Moses. 
And Moses was perhaps the nation's greatest prophet, but David was her greatest king. And Jesus is also the greater Davidic king. 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David and says, your descendant will reign on the throne forever. And obviously Solomon did more immediately reign, but that's looking forward to Christ who is the full and final fulfillment of this as he reigns on the throne of David for all time. Christ is also the son who is born. Isaiah prophesies about this in a text we read at Christmas and you're like, can we, can we read this any other time? Yes, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A few, a few chapters later, to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And Christ is also the suffering servant whom Isaiah speaks about in chapter 53 when he writes that he is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ is the purpose and the point of the entirety of Scripture. And we have just begun to scratch the surface. Now, this doesn't mean that in every verse, in every word, there's Christ. But it does mean that any time we take any significant portion of scripture, there is a road to Christ. Not one imposed by the preacher or imposed by the interpreter of scripture, but one placed there by the spirit of God who inspired this text. But we often miss these roads in our own understanding. If you remember last Christmas Eve, uh, we got a lot of snow. So I was driving back to Indiana after our Christmas Eve services and probably for the first hour of the trip, I couldn't see the road. But I knew it was there. I had my GPS and sometimes could see the road signs and occasionally you'd see a snow plow out trying to clear the way. And I don't even know what those things are called, but you know when you start veering off and it makes the loud noise. I heard that a lot. Um, so I knew I was still on the road. I knew the road was there, but I couldn't see it. I needed help. That's what it's like studying the Bible. We know these roads to Christ are all throughout the pages of scripture and yet we often can't see them. We need help. And that leads us to our second indication that we are reading scripture rightly is when we pray for understanding. We pray for understanding. We have to recognize that we cannot fully understand this book as it intends and demands to be read and understood in our own strength. We see this in this text, verse 45, uh, right after Jesus tells his disciples that uh, everything written about him must be fulfilled, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Earlier, when the, the followers on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him until we read their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It's obviously not talking about physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. They couldn't see until he opened their eyes. They couldn't understand until he opened their minds. See, Jesus says, guys, I told you all this would happen when I was with you. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures talked about it. So what was the reason they hadn't seen it? It's because it takes a miraculous work of God in our hearts for us to actually see Christ in these pages. And not just that, but for us to actually love the Christ whom we see, to treasure him as the greatest joy in the universe. That takes a miraculous work of God. You and I do not have it within our natural understanding or capability to actually understand the Bible as it demands to be understood. We need help. But here's the reason why we can talk about how the word does not return void or how we can talk about how it's living and active. It's because the spirit of God 
lives inside every believer, illuminating the hearts and the minds so that we can understand, and not just understand, but see and savor Christ as glorious. The least educated Christian in the world who has the Spirit of God living in them can understand the Bible at a deeper level and as it intends to be, to, to be read more than the most educated pagan because it's the Spirit of God who lights our way. He is the one who shows us, opens our eyes to see these roads to Christ in his scriptures and he is the one who enables us to actually delight in the Christ whom we see. And so we're reading scripture rightly when we're praying for understanding, recognizing that it, need, it takes a miracle of God in our hearts and yet knowing he delights in performing this miracle still today. And so as we, by the Spirit's guidance, we also know we're reading Scripture rightly when we're seeing Christ as the fulfillment of what was written. We see Christ as the fulfillment. Jesus had said that everything written must be fulfilled, and then verse 46, he tells his disciples, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So after opening their minds to understand the scriptures, he says, thus it is written. So in other words, he's drawing upon what was written in the Old Testament and saying, it was written, and he says earlier, it must be fulfilled. So Jesus is the fulfillment of what was written. We're reading scripture rightly when we see him fulfilling what was written previously. It's, it's pointing to him and he comes and fulfills it. He's the true and better. If you want to see how this works, get familiar with the New Testament. Hebrews does it. In fact, those verses we read earlier, right after that, it begins a series of quotations from the Old Testament pointing to Christ, talking about further in his point. And all the authors of the New Testament are doing this. For example, just as you're reading through the Gospels, Take a pen, circle, or underline, or whatever you do, and just note those times where it talks about Jesus did this to fulfill what was written, or thus it was said, or just things like that, where it's, it's, it's quoting or referencing the Old Testament and, and seeing Christ as the fulfillment, and you'll start seeing those all over the place. The entirety of the Bible points to Christ. And ultimately, after we discover these roads to Christ in the text by the Spirit's illumining presence in our hearts, we then follow the roads to the nations. And that's what we see fourthly. We are reading scripture rightly when we are living it out. Live it out. Now, this is actually our main focus for next week, so I'm not going to belabor the point too much here today, but notice what Jesus says in verse 47 and then into 49. It says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So in other words, Jesus says, guys, you have received the message of the gospel. The repentance for the forgiveness of sins has been embraced by you. Jesus, after making purification for sins, has sat down. His work is finished. And the disciples have received this word. And he says, you've got to take it to the nations. You are witnesses of these things. Now, the apostles were witnesses of these things in a special, specific manner. They were eyewitnesses of these things. But you and I, who have received the word of God, are also witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we have a responsibility to live it out. And part of that responsibility to live it out is to take that to those who don't know him. To your neighbor living next door. To your coworker who doesn't know Jesus. To your family member. To your friend. We have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel. And we ultimately have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel to those, to the ends of the earth who don't have access to the word of God. Who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of us must go. And that's what Jesus is saying to all the nations. but it is totally foolish to think that we can do this on our own strength. I can't even change my own heart. I can't even understand this thing in my own strength. How do I think I'm gonna help someone else do that? You think about what is Christian ministry? Well, it's a ministry of bringing dead people to life. How am I supposed to do that? We need the spirit of God And that's what Jesus says. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So in other words, he's saying, stay in Jerusalem and don't go until I send the Spirit. Why? Because if they go in their own strength, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. If we need a miracle to be able to actually see and savor Christ, which we do, then we can't do that in other people until the Spirit of God works in them. But he sends the Spirit to indwell believers to call people to Christ, to shine light into the darkness of our own understandings, that we can actually see what the Bible is all about. He is always working through the word, and yet he is working to accomplish this purpose. The Spirit glorifies Christ, and he guides us in the truth. See, I think everyone you meet is probably wondering at some level, either they have wrestled with this, or are wrestling, or will wrestle with Is God there? What's he like? So we can be like Paul when he walked in and saw the the, the shrine to the unknown God and he said, that God has made himself known. Let me tell you about him. God has made himself known. He has told us who he is and we have the privilege, the joy, and the responsibility of sharing that with others. So his word is finished because his revelation is finished and all roads in this Bible point to him. And so we know we're reading scripture rightly when we pray for understanding because we know that we cannot recognize Christ in all the scriptures without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to illumine our hearts and our minds to see and enjoy Christ. And once we are spirit-empowered witnesses of Christ, seeing him as the fulfillment of all that was written, seeing how he has made purification for sins, then we live that out by proclaiming that to our neighbors and to the nations. That's how we read the Bible. You say, well, that's a lot easier said than done. Yes, it takes a lifetime of work. And at the end of that, you'll realize that you've only begun to scratch the surface of the treasures that are contained in here. But we do it with joy because this book from from the beginning to the end, every page shows us Christ who is the greatest treasure of our lives. This book doesn't contain everything there is to know about God. (laughs) No book can do that. In fact, because God is infinite and eternal, I'm convinced that for all of eternity, we'll be discovering more and more of the glory and goodness of God. And that's thrilling. No book can contain all of his wonders and all of his glories. And yet God says, everything that you need to know about me and how to follow me is right here in this book. Everything you need to know about how to believe in me is here. 
The son's work of salvation is finished and he has made himself known to us in his word. And by the spirit of God, we can actually see Christ from page to page. And not only can we see him, but we can love him. And that's the joy of our lives and that's the privilege of reading this Bible, diving in is seeing Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Uh, We learn so many things from it, but most gloriously we see you in it. So thank you for sending your son as the Christ and in the fullness of time when uh, took on flesh, dwelt among us, died for us, making purification for sins. Thank you for him. Thank you that the entirety of your revelation points to him as the fulfillment, that our hope rests upon him. We need to see him and we need you to be able to see him. So I pray that you would do this work in our hearts and our minds to open our eyes to be able to see and understand these things by your spirit, that we would rightly treasure Christ as our highest joy. And in all of this, may you receive all the honor and the glory that you so richly deserve. So we ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.